BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the show. It's your host, Olivia Perez. I'm a journalist, interviewer, and the creator of Friend of a Friend a show where we sit down with some of my friends, your friends, and new friends to host inspiring but down-to-earth conversations with some of my favorite luminaries who are making good change. If you're a fashion lover or a sneakerhead just like me, you are no stranger to today's guest. Melody Asani is the visionary designer and entrepreneur behind ME, a streetwear brand specializing in jewelry, footwear, and clothing with a message. Since launching, Melody has challenged the status quo of streetwear, an industry widely known as a boys club with little room or inclusivity for women within the space. Since 2014, Melody has been the first and only women's boutique on Fairfax in Los Angeles, a place where she often brings women together through programming and special events. She's one of the only women to have ever collaborated with the Jordan brand, creating footwear designs that are some of the most coveted shoes on the market today. For example, her latest Air Jordan 1 collaboration sold out in two minutes. In this episode, Melody and I talk about her upbringing in Los Angeles and how she left law school to pursue her design career. We also talk about what makes a dream collaboration, her best tips for advocating for yourself, and her newest project, her podcast, The Butterfly Forecast, which launches on February 2nd. She also fills us in on how she's been handling lockdown, to how she's been giving back in LA, to how she spends her favorite date nights with her husband, Flea. I hope you guys love the episode. If you have not subscribed to the show and you find yourself coming back every week, take the time to subscribe. And if you love the show, share it with a friend. I love seeing when you guys are listening. So when you do, please take a screenshot and share it on social. Tag me. I'm at Liv Perez with two Vs. I love seeing when you guys are listening and I love getting to reshare. I appreciate you guys and thank you so much for tuning in. Here's my friend, Melody Asani. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm such a big fan and I'm really excited to be talking today. Oh, thank you so much. I think it'll be fun. So you grew up with Iranian immigrant parents and I'd love to hear a little bit about your childhood and what it was like navigating such an eclectic childhood. Well, I'm sure with all immigrant parents or growing up in all immigrant households, especially for mine, they were I was a first generation here it was really strange because it was sort of like living between two different worlds. So I was going to school and all my friends were American and not Iranian. And then I was experiencing a whole culture outside of my household. And then I'd come into my household where my parents had literally just escaped a revolution in their country and didn't want to leave their country, but were forced to. 
and were trying their hardest to hold on to their culture inside the home. So we only spoke Farsi. I, you know, I didn't, I don't think I even learned English until I started school, even though I was born here. So it was, it was very, it was a, a big dichotomy, but it was cool. Yeah. I, I love what you just said about having two different worlds. When you would go to school and then come home, there'd be something really different. What were some of your favorite traditions as a kid? You know, I didn't realize that they were my favorites until I was older because I didn't know how special they were. But my mom was a full-on chef. I mean, she made us Persian food. And I think that Persian cuisine is probably my favorite kind of food to this day. And she made us all three meals every day, pretty much. And that was kind of my favorite. And then there were certain holidays that we got to celebrate that were Iranian holidays that weren't American, that were really special, like Nowruz, which is the Persian New Year that happens in March at the spring equinox. And part of the thing is you get a new outfit, you're supposed to wear new clothes. And so as a kid, I always looked forward to just being able to get a new outfit. It's so funny because you're as a kid, you're worried that you'll be judged on those kinds of things when you're a kid. And then you look back to them and you're just like, wow, that was actually such a cool thing. Yeah. It's what made you different. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. My family is Moroccan and my dad definitely brought a lot of those traditions into our home as well. And it was as well. I, I felt something very similar where sometimes I was like, this is kind of weird and different and none of my friends have to do this. Why do I have to do it? But yeah. now, actually, especially I feel like this year and in a time where I've celebrated home a lot more, those traditions have really had a really like special place in my heart in terms of just having them in my own home. Totally, totally. No, I feel the same way. I think that the only thing that scarred me were some of the, some of the things like my mom would never pack me normal food. I mean, not normal, but all I wanted was like a Wonder Bread sandwich with turkey slices and a Minute Maid juice box and gummy bears, you know? Right. And my mom, (laughs) it was always leftovers. It was always some kind of ornate Persian food and she would package it in Tupperware and I'd get sent to school and it smelled so weird and bad in class. And I would be mortified. I was like, can I please just, just please just making me a sandwich like the other kids. In learning more about you, I read that you were a very justice-driven kid. I'd love to hear a little bit about how that took shape in your childhood. <laughs> that sounds so funny, a justice-driven <laughs> kid. Well, I I grew up, I, I think it wasn't that I was justice-driven. I think I just had a natural orientation or inclination towards it. I was very much about what was right and what was wrong. And I think I I, for whatever reason, I was able to identify it from a really young age. Like, this isn't right. Like, these people shouldn't be treated that way. And why are these people treated that way? And I think that I experienced that uh, in witnessing my parents sometimes, you know, some, some of the comments that my dad would make about coworkers when he came home from work, or it was just the thing that I was attuned to. Or I remember one time our garage Uh, was broken into and my mom called the police and the police officer told her, you know, well, nobody told you to move here. Maybe you should just move back to your country. And so it was things like that where I don't think other kids picked up on it looking back, but I always 
really picked up on it. And it really, I always wanted to do something about it or say something about it. And so by the time I was like eight or nine or 10, I think that I started to find more of my place in that where I was really drawn towards certain things. I, I met this woman named Dr. Joy DeGruy when I was eight or nine years old and she had written or she was doing studies about post-traumatic slave syndrome back then and I heard her talk and I remember running up to the podium after she was done talking and asking her if I could have her speech because I was so moved by it I just wanted to study it and uh, you know she's somebody that to this day I still look up to who, who studies and addresses the racial issue, especially in America. And so it it's just something that's always been a part of my orientation, which is probably why I wanted to go to law school. That's definitely different from what you're doing today. I'd love to hear a little bit about why you decided to pursue that and what kind of that moment was like later when you realized it wasn't right for you. Yeah. You know, I wasn't really given a lot of options as a kid. I didn't realize what a big world there was out there. I was raised by parents who had a very specific perspective and my dad passed away when I was 10. And so that really changed the course of all of our lives in a big way. And my mom, rightfully so, just wanted me to be successful and wanted me to be respected. And, you know, she really wanted me to be somebody or to fulfill something that she wasn't able to fulfill. And so when I thought about justice, I felt like the only option would be the law because it's the most obvious one. It had never occurred to me that I could practice that through, you know, other kinds of channels. So it just seemed like the only option until I actually got into the field and I did probably two years of internships before I entered law school or before I was supposed to enter law school. And I was left completely disenchanted by it. I was like, I don't, I can't do this for the rest of my life. That because the practice of it was so severely different from the study of it and the concept of it. And so it really, really threw me for a loop. Was there something when you were a kid that made you realize that you had an inclination for design? Because going to law school and now probably looking back on your childhood, was there ever a moment we were like, oh, wow, I actually was really design oriented? Oh, yeah. All the all the time. I mean, I would win art challenges at school and both my parents were artists, which is the ironic part. My mom's a painter. My dad was an artist. But the thing is, they had never succeeded in it. So they viewed it more as a hobby rather than something sustainable that you could do in your life. So I recently posted a photo on Instagram, actually, not too long ago that I found because I had begged my dad when I was younger to build me a treehouse or just like a, a little playhouse in the backyard. And he was so sweet. He actually did. He went to Home Depot and built me this little four by four house. And I had gone on top of the house and I had painted Emmy's candy shop. And, you know, I would change the sign all the time. I'd paint it and turn it into different things. And I utilized the house to host people and have people over and I'd make little things and I'd set them up in the house and invite everyone to come see them. And anytime my parents had friends over, 
you know, I would come and show them my creation and probably do some kind of dance performance along with it. But, and aside from that, I think I, I was always the kind of person that was looking at things and being like, oh, this is cool, but I wish it was made this way. Or this is a nice toothbrush, but what if they had done that to it? It would be so much better. So what was the first design that you ever made and what tools did you use to make it? Hmm. Well, I, when I was going to, I started taking night classes at an art school and they had a laser cutter at the school and I kind of became obsessed with the laser cutter. Oh yeah. So I was making three-dimensional, my whole thing was how can I make three-dimensional objects out of cutting something two-dimensionally? Because the way the laser cutter works is that you put a sheet, a flat sheet of plastic or wood or whatever it is that it's able to cut and you cut out a shape that's flat. So I was designing all these things that were flat, but I was designing them in components. And then um, after they were cut, I would glue them together, put them together in a way where they were 3D. And this was really new back then. Nobody had really made jewelry out of out of plexiglass. And I really wanted a three-finger ring because it's something that I had always wanted growing up, but they were so expensive and they were only available in gold at the time. And I didn't have whatever it was, like the $400 to spend on one. So I was determined to figure out how to make one out of plastic. So I made one on a laser cutter and I assembled it and put it together. And that was probably one of my favorite things that I've ever made to this day. Do you still have it? I do. I don't know if I have the original one, but I've at this point, I've made probably thousands of them. (laughs) That's really cool. I get this question a ton. I'm sure you experienced this as well while you were dabbling with the laser cutter and kind of refining your design eye. What helped you be like, okay, I have an idea. I want to execute it. It's definitely not something that's like, quote unquote, stable, like going to law school. But I feel like I have a solid ground underneath me for me to go and do my own thing. I think it was just waking up to who I was and trusting that. And that was, I I think that if this makes sense, at that point in time, I had gathered enough of me to be solid in who I was and what I wanted and what I thought I was good at and what I thought I could do. I didn't know what it was going to look like. I didn't know anything else, which made it really scary. But I had enough of me at that point. Whereas before, I didn't I didn't have enough of me. I didn't know what I was good at. I didn't know. I had never really received mirroring as to like, hey, Melody, you're really good at this. Or you should try this. Or you're really gifted with this. Had I received that earlier, I think it would have been a different story. I I would have had more, whatever it is, self-confidence or self-knowledge to be able to pursue it. And I had just gathered enough. And I think that that came through a number of different ways. But I, I didn't feel like I had any other choice because this was the only thing that made me happy. And it was the only thing that I could think about. And it was the only thing that I wanted to pursue. And my thought at the time was like, well, if we are sort of designs, you know, if I was designed this way, if this is what I'm quote unquote gifted at or good at, then why would I be designed this way and then not be able to do this thing and be supported by it? 
you know, if, if I had any sort of understanding or belief in a creator, that would be pretty evil of a creator to create you in a certain way and then not allow you to live off of that gift. So that was sort of my thinking at the time where I was like, well, this is what I'm good at. This is what I love. This is what I internally feel the most drawn towards. And so I just have to trust that if I do it, then something will transpire. Was there something specific that allowed you to overcome that self-doubt? Yes, I met this woman. Her name is Julie Burns Walker. She's actually one of my best friends now. But she is an, a medical intuitive, for lack of a better word. Wow. And when I was really depressed, somebody referred me to her and I had a session with her. And in the first session, she sort of told me all these things about me that I, that nobody had ever said out loud and including myself. And I think that that really started me on this trajectory of, wow, if this complete stranger was just able to identify these things in me, even though I think she's crazy now, there is some truth to it. You know, it just sort of planted a seed in me that made me want to go deeper where I was like, this is, I really felt like this is why I existed at the time. You know, I was like, this is my, the most important thing I can do in my life is figure out why I'm here and how I can serve humanity and myself at the same time. It sounds like she gave you affirmations almost. She did give me affirmations. I think she just saw me. It's so rare to be seen. Yeah. It's really rare to be seen. I feel like our society really creates, has created an environment for you to forget who you are and to buy into something different. And it doesn't celebrate our uniqueness and our differences. And so when somebody actually sees you, it's really powerful. I feel like um, mirroring one another is, is important. This new year, I remember I was thinking about what I wanted to really established in this new year. And I think the biggest thing was not buying into false projections because so many people, so many things try to project onto you what you are. And it so often comes from a place that has nothing to do with you. And so it's so important to really check in with yourself every day and sort of go through that process of realizing what people are projecting in on you and then figuring out what's yours and what's not and separating those things and not being affected by the things that aren't and understanding why somebody would project something like that on you. And it's so insidious because it could be so subtle and it could come across as somebody that really loves you or, you know, it could come in so many different forms, but if it's not you or what you relate to as your purpose in life or in that day or whatever it is, then you really have to be careful not to take it on. We'll be right back after a quick break. Okay. So how many of you woke up on January 1st and vowed to eat healthier or switch something up in your routine to make you feel better? This year, turn your resolutions into reality. Whether you're looking to try plant-based eating, build an empowered body, boost skin's glow, or simply just feel your very best, Sakara makes it easy to create rituals that last. Sakara is a company rooted in the transformative power of plant-based foods. 
Their organic, ready-to-eat meals are made with powerful, plant-rich ingredients, and they're designed to boost your energy, improve digestion, and get your skin glowing. Their menu of creative, chef-crafted breakfasts, lunch, and dinners change weekly, so you'll never get bored. We're talking meals like five-herb pesto pasta and a pumpkin pie parfait, delivered, ready to go, no prep necessary, every single week. And it's delivered fresh anywhere in the U.S. Along with delicious plant-rich meals, Sakara also offers daily wellness essentials for optimal nutrition. Sakara supplement packs called the Foundation and their Metabolism Super Powder deliver support for gut health, energy, immunity, and healthy skin. And right now, Sakara is offering our listeners 20% off their first order when they go to sakara.com slash friend or enter the code friend at checkout. That's Sakara, S-A-K-A-R-A dot com slash friend to get 20% off your first order. Sakara.com slash friend. You are one of the first women to ever be on Fairfax, and your designs have been seen on some incredible people from SZA to Alicia Keys. And I wonder what that must feel like now to see a label that's named after you and how that is representative of who you are as a person today. It's really cool. I mean, it's such a privilege because I, I just feel like I get to, I feel like my brand in a way is my version of paying it forward. I get to do all this work on myself and in the world. And I feel like as soon as I figure something out, I want to share it and just sort of try to be an example of if I could do it, then you can do it. I think I'm just trying to fulfill all the things that I didn't get and all the things that I notice are missing through what I do. As I've grown older and as since the time that I've had my brand, I think it's coincided with world trends where through my friendships with my, you know, through conversations with my friends and just seeing what they're going through and sharings and then seeing, having access to social media and picking up other kinds of trends of things that we think are personal to us that we think we're going through personally, but then if you talk to enough of your girlfriends, you'll realize, whoa, actually right now, it seems like it's a trend. A lot of women are having this issue with men or are dealing with this issue with their periods or this issue with their bodies or are feeling this way. And so I love to merge the two together, whereas like the fashion trend, whatever it may be, and the trend of what we're feeling and why and addressing it and putting it out there so that more conversations can be started about it, or there could be more awareness about it, or it could empower us in some greater way because it makes you think about something that maybe you didn't think about before, or maybe it allows you to see yourself in a way that you didn't see yourself before. What I love most about your business is that it's definitely community-driven. I'd love to hear a little bit about how community has taken shape in your business. For me, it's always been about uh, education and camaraderie. So in our store, when we opened it, we sort of started viewing it as a community center where we would have speaker series every month. And we would bring different speakers that brought in a different perspective about something or that were inspiring about something or could teach us about something. So we would have people like Janae Khan come and speak about policing and the issues with policing in 
the United States or racism, or we would have Dr. Joy DeGruy who came many times and taught about her theory of axiology, or we would have Serena Williams um, would come and talk about her journey of how she made it to where she is, or, you know, it was all these incredible speakers that would come and at the end of every night, everybody would feel uplifted and empowered because they either saw a part of themselves or they received something from themselves or uh, were given permission to just come together and be together and support and empower one another. That's amazing. And I feel like that's so much about what what these like almost retail spaces should be. They should be more about community and more about, you know, how can you build a space where people can go in and, and feel like they're a part of something. From building the business to where you are now, what do you feel was the biggest challenge that you overcame to get to current day? Really, I think myself. I feel like because I didn't have any kind of reference point for what I was doing, I didn't have anybody in my family or in my upbringing that owned a business or had a business. They surely didn't know anything about fashion or anything associated with it. So there was absolutely no reference point for anything that I was doing. So every step I took, I was like, am I doing this right? How do other people do it? What, what's the right thing? What's not the right thing? And in a lot of ways, I feel like that benefited me because I didn't have a structure to follow. You know, I wasn't trained in school in, for design, so I didn't really understand what was faux pas or what was not. You know, sometimes to this day, I still hear a lot of design school students or graduates talk about fonts and how it oh, you shouldn't use this font because it means this or, oh, Times Roman, you know, and I really never knew anything about that kind of culture. So it was kind of cool because it didn't put any kind of boundary on what I was doing. I didn't have to think twice about it, but at the same time, I just had no reference. I, I really didn't know if what I was doing was working or not working. And so I, mm. I had to sort of trust the process. And I think that that was the most difficult thing is, is just sort of navigating something in a way blindly, but trusting that whatever it was, I had enough natural instinct or intuition that would be able to guide me through to wherever it was I needed to get to. And that process has really made me trust myself more in a way that I just feel, again, like I have more of myself as I'm going through life and just collecting more of myself. It just feels like more of myself. I totally relate to that. I feel like when you work for yourself and you're starting something on your own, working in a silo can feel really intimidating and you don't really know what the right direction is. Totally. It's crazy. It's crazy. A big thing that has really helped me in the past year is like bringing on a team and bringing on people that are like-minded, can tell me if I'm, if my idea is crazy, can kind of make me feel seen on a day-to-day -day basis. I think that especially if you're someone who wants to go and like start something on your own, finding at least one person to have in the room with you that can help can really almost help make you feel less alone in the process is huge. Totally, totally. And I'm so thankful for those people along the way that just sort of have 
kind of hallmarked my journey because I don't think that I couldn't could have done it without them. I would love to talk a little bit about your collaborations. You are one of the, I think one of three women to ever collaborate with the Jordan brand. What has that process been like for you? It was so cool. I mean, it was sort of like the fulfillment of a childhood yeah. fantasy in a kind of way. I mean, it wasn't even a fantasy because I didn't even think that it was possible, but I grew up with Michael Jordan. You know, I grew up with those like Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, basketball players being sort of my heroes. And so it was so special. I'd never thought that I would see my name next to a jump man. But the process was really lovely. I mean, there was they have a great team of women that work there, which was really cool to connect with and work with. And it was amazing. How did that happen? Was it like a DM slide? Was it an email? How did that, <laughs> how did that happen? Well, I had been working with Reebok for a while. I think I was under contract with them for four years. And then as soon as my contract ended, I didn't re-sign with them. And the people that are in the footwear, there isn't a lot of people in the footwear business like that. So some of the people that had their eyes on me kind of knew that my contract had ended. And one of them was like, well, as soon as it's over, let us know, you know, we would want you to come to Jordan. And I was like, really? You would? Yeah, that's crazy. And I was like, don't toy with my emotions. And so it was a bit of a conversation. And then they flew me out to Portland and it was over from there. Wow. I was really happy about. I love that. Some of your shoes are my favorite because of the almost like mementos that are included in them, whether it's like a watch on your Jordan 1s or the cherry. I'd love to hear a little bit about your design process when it comes to that. Like, do you, is it design and aesthetic first, or do you go into every collaboration and you're like, there's a certain message that I want to send here? Yeah, I think each one is different. They all start from a different place. Sometimes I'm really inspired by a color or a theme or a movie or whatever it is. And then, so I work from that place forward. So I think with the the ones with the watch that you're talking about, it was sort of the the thing that most inspired me was a quote that my friend Julie said, which was, if you knew what you had was rare, you would never waste it. And this had so deeply resonated with me. And again, it was something that I had heard that I was like, everybody needs to hear this quote. This is such an important quote because we don't really know what we are or who we are yet. And if we really understood what we were, we would never waste it. And it was just so powerful to me. So I, I was inspired by a certain combination of colors together and that quote. And there was all these things that were happening where I felt like time was of the essence. So I put the watch on there sort of as like a time is now kind of thing. Yeah. I love those. And yeah. So it all just came together, but each one is different. I mean, the cherry one was inspired by that movie, Love and Basketball, and it was the 20-year anniversary of the movie, and it was, you know, one of my favorite movies growing up, and it was the first time a woman had ever been portrayed on TV as a basketball player, as a pro player, and so it was just so many different layers to it, but I I just love storytelling, so I think Mm -hmm. it always there's always some kind of story there. And then it's just about how am I going to 
translate that into a tiny canvas that you wear and you can look down and then it'll just be like, you could just look down at it and be like, okay, I'm good for the day. In all those collaborations, was there something that was a big takeaway from working with a brand in that capacity? Like for anybody that's going into a collaboration or wants to pitch a collaboration, what's your best tip for making it mutually beneficial and making sure both voices are heard in it? Mm. Well, I, I think that oftentimes artists or collaborators go into it thinking that you're going to be working with this big company and that their value or contribution is greater than yours just because of sheerly how big they are. Right. And it's not true. I think it's so important to recognize the importance of the designer, or the collaborator, because essentially that's how those brands stay relevant and stay cool is by working with people like you. And so I think that really just going into it, knowing that you're the person that's bringing in the real value to the relationship and then not selling, settling for anything less or being felt like anybody's doing you a favor right. kind of thing. It's, I, I think it's about mutuality, you know, just really understanding what, what it is that you're bringing. It goes back to what we were saying, affirming that you're in the room and being able to affirm that for yourself and not have to feel validated by something else. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. When you came out with the OG Jordans, you did an incredible post. You had spoken about being 11 years old and writing a letter to Magic Johnson and saying that you were upset about not being able to be a girl and go to basketball camp. And it's so interesting to hear you talk about that today because I feel like we're dealing with a really similar issue right now when it comes to the sneaker world and women and not being able to really see much inclusivity in that. And I don't know if you read, there was an article on High Stability that came out a couple of days ago that basically was a call to action for you know, more inclusive sizing for women in the sneaker world. And mm-hmm. I'd love to hear your thoughts about the current state of that today and how you feel progress is being made or where you feel like we can be doing better. Wow. Well, I always say this, but it still bugs me out that it's 2021 and we've never experienced equality. Mm-hmm. So it, it's just that. It's just that we haven't experienced it yet. We don't know what it looks like. We don't know what it feels like. And so I think that women really need to step into themselves and own their rightful place and understand that it's not something that's going to be handed over, but it's something that we're going to have to take Mm. and that we're going to have to demand. And it's going to be uncomfortable, but discomfort doesn't mean disunity. You know, we can do it and still be who we are and still have love for everybody. But I think that, you know, in all of these companies, there's so many women that work within the company. And there's, I feel like there's such a big opportunity there for them to demand more. And I know in my situation, whenever I'm able to be in the room, I hold that space and demand more and it's not comfortable. But it's something that we have to do because currently a lot of those companies that are driven towards a predominantly male market and run by predominantly male C-suite executives, they're only thinking about the bottom line. Right. And so they're, 
you know, the majority of their business is in men's. And so that's where they're investing all their marketing dollars and that's where they're investing all their resources. I feel like there just really needs to be a reappropriation of funds and a greater investment in women and the potential for that. I want to talk about your latest project, which I'm really excited about, which is your podcast called The Butterfly Forecast. What made you want to start a podcast? Well, my best friend and I, Julie, we, you know, she is the one that I was speaking about earlier that's the medical intuitive. It was kind of fortuitous that we even became friends because I don't think she's ever become friends with a client of hers. Hmm. But it started happening. I mean, I've known her now for about 15 years. And so it, it happened over time. And we would have these conversations over the phone about trends because she sees trends through her practice where, you know, she works with, I mean, thousands of people across the globe. And she would notice that she would talk to, you know, 20 different people in a week that were experiencing the same kind of symptoms, um, mm -hmm. whether it be physically or feelings, and they had no connection to one another and, uh, you know, didn't have any other things in mutual, but they were all experiencing the same thing. Hmm. So it kind of made her look deeper at it as like, what, what's happening here? There must be a greater trend or a more overall trend. And then I would share with her all the things that I was noticing. And so I felt like every time we were having our phone conversations, I was taking that information and then I was going and telling all my other friends. And I'd hmm. be like, well, did you ever consider this? And, and so I, we started joking around that our phone conversations were like podcasts. And we were like, what if we actually did do our conversations as a podcast? And I think that the deciding factor was that we just really felt when we started doing it last year, we started recording, we really felt like there was such a need for empowering people because so many people felt disempowered. And we just thought that we could, you know, talk about things in life and offer some kind of empowerment through these conversations through the lens of the butterfly effect, which is, you know, that small things can have really big consequences, you know, like a butterfly flapping its wings can stop a hurricane from happening. But it's not just one butterfly, you need multiple butterflies. So it's sort of like gathering. <laughs> enough butterflies to, in these small ways, to have big effects in the world. That's so beautiful. What an awesome idea. Yeah, it's, it's been so fun. It's really been so fun because I feel like I'm learning so much about stuff uh, just through talking with her. And I really hope that people resonate with it. I think that they will. Yeah, I think the best podcasts always come from the same idea of what you were just saying, having really genuine, amazing conversations and being like, you know, this would be great if it was recorded. Yeah, <laughs> totally. What can we expect to see on the show? Are you going to bring on guests or will it be the two of you each week kind of divulging a different theme? Yeah, it's going to be both. So awesome. it'll be us. And then we're bringing on some guests, which I'm really excited about. And so we're kind of going to be exploring, we'll probably explore a subject and then we might bring in a guest on the next episode just to be an example of that exploration or exploring that same subject through a more personal lens. I'm excited to see how this takes shape as like a further extension of the amazing community you already have. 
Thank you. Yeah, it's kind of cool. I mean, it's it feels weird using my voice in different ways because so, mm. for so long I've used it through product mm-hmm. and now I'm actually using it, which is kind of cool. So we'll see. I feel like it's just another manifestation of what I've already been doing in a different way. It is definitely a humbling and very introspective experience to hear yourself talk for 45 yeah. minutes to an hour. <laughs> I know. I know. I feel like I've learned so much about myself through d- doing the show. Is there something that in the past couple of weeks you've been like, oh my God, I say that a lot or, you know, something yes. like that. I've realized that I'm a full on valley girl and I use the word like so much. And so I've really tried, I have to be conscious about it, but I, I'm always like, oh my God, like. <laughs> it's so funny because I have not picked that up once in this podcast. With me? Yep. Oh, that's because I was very conscious of it. I, there was a couple of times, I don't know if you noticed, but I have to pause and I'd be like, nope, replace the word. <laughs> so we end every episode with a couple of rapid fire questions. So anything that comes to mind, whatever is on your mind right now. I have picked up that you are a very intuitive, spiritual person, and I'd love to hear what you are reading right now. Um, I just finished reading James Baldwin's The Fire Next Time, which was incredible. What is your favorite way to give back in LA? Ooh, right now, since March of last year, I've been going down to the Nickerson Projects in Watts every Friday, and it's my favorite thing to do. We pass out farm boxes. It's run through Watts Community Corps and Summa Everything, which is an organization Lauren Halsey started. And they provide mostly food and services to a food desert in LA, basically. What is something that you love about LA? The weather. Yeah, unbeatable. 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 Who's your favorite person to follow on Instagram? Ooh, I would say my husband. (laughs) Honestly, same. (laughs) (laughs) he's just it's he's either really funny or really informative or Mm -hmm. he's always posting about somebody that I don't know about and so I feel like I'm always learning or laughing and those are my two favorite things to do (laughs) you and Flea are like my favorite couple goals for like people who love (laughs) but people who like love LA so much and like champion people from here speaking of which what is you and Flea's favorite date night Oh my God, I can't get, first of all, being married to Flea is like being married to like a wild bear. It's like to, to like, it's like, you know how you like really want to get close to it because it's so cute, but you can't because it's a wild animal. (laughs) Loving where this is going. (laughs) Trying to lock him down into doing any kind of date night is literally very challenging. But um, before the pandemic, it was the Laker games. I mean, it was like our our favorite thing to do together. And I think uh, we don't have like a, we're not good at doing date nights, but there are certain things that we do together often that, that are my favorite things. One of them is watching the games with him. I love that. I think there's nothing better than being an LA Laker fan. Yeah. Like nothing. I remember I actually just moved back from New York during the pandemic. I was there for nine years and I remember going to a Knicks game there for my first time, like when I was 19 and I'd grown up going to Laker games. And I remember looking around being like, what is this? <laughs> I was yeah. like, this is what you guys it's are really doing? different. I know. Totally I different. felt that way 
I felt that way a few times yeah. in other states. Yeah. Totally. What is your creative goal for 2021? Ooh, this is good. My creative goal, I think to be more creative in different ways mm -hmm. than I have been. So the podcast is one of them. I just really want to stretch my my creativity in, in ways that I haven't really explored yet. Last question. What is the best piece of advice a friend has ever given you? Ooh, this is good. The best piece of advice a friend has ever given me. One of my friends told me one time that we know where things are supposed to come from. And she's like, if, if there's something that you need that you're not getting from where it's supposed to come from, you have to go deep enough in your core to know for sure that it'll come from somewhere else. Ooh. And I love that so much. I think I've carried it with me ever since she said that to me because there's so many things like, you know, in, in situations, like if you're in a work situation, you know, there's a certain expectation for you to get whatever it is from work. And if you're not getting it there, then knowing that you'll get it in some other way because it's something for you or it's meant for you. It's hard to explain, but. I love that. It's some, it reminds me of something that I always get from a friend, which is what's for you won't go by you. Yes. I love that. I'm really, really happy we got to chat today. Thank you so much Thanks, for taking Olivia. the time. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Friend of a Friend. Before you go, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at tiermedia.com. And for more behind the scenes of the show, visit us at friendofafriend.us and follow me at Liv Perez on Instagram. Don't forget the two Bs. See you next week.